0: Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it. See to it. Three things, three that's, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, that is, the blessing, with tears. Last week, we preached on the first several verses of this. We called that Final Instructions on Running the Spiritual Race. And this is Final Instructions on Running the Spiritual Race, Part 2, I suppose, Or, in good Puritan fashion, to give it two titles. Why not? The duty of congregational care. The duty of congregational care. Let me remind you again, and probably for the final time, because this large line of thought in Hebrews is coming to an end with these verses. Let me remind you of the line of thinking in these chapters. This portion of Hebrews is a call to endure in faith all the way to the end of life so that we actually reach heaven. The great cloud of witnesses who has, by the grace of God, crossed the finish line, sits in the stands of heaven and they encourage us to keep on running. And Jesus who gave us this faith and promises to perfect it urges us to look to him both for strength and the example. If we do this, we will join him eternally in the presence of God. We will see the Lord. Now, difficulties of all kinds will come and we need to think rightly about these difficulties they are not outside of the plan of God. In fact, they are discipline from our Heavenly Father. Because we still sin, because we are weak, God chastises us. He wants us to run to the end, and so he pursues us with reproof. And all of this proves our sonship, grows our respect for God, is for our good and results in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And because all of this is true, when we think rightly, we will act rightly. And so in these verses, 12 to 17, they tell us how to respond to God's training regimen. First, he tells us in picture form, Remember, he goes back to his running example or illustration. That was in verses 12 and 13. And then he tells us the exact same thing in command form in verse 14. In other words, the way to mend these running weaknesses is to pursue peace and holiness. Now in verses 15 to 17, our verses for today, he will warn us of the consequences of not running to the end, of not striving, of not pursuing, and he will do this by reminding us of two topics that he has repeatedly in this sermon, in this book, brought to our attention. And those two topics are looking after one another and apostasy. Looking after one another and apostasy. So I've entitled the sermon on these three verses, The Duty of congregational care. So let's look first at duty's definition. Duty's definition. Then we'll look at duty's goal and then duty's uses. So first, duty's definition. What specifically is the duty we are called to in these verses? Well, it's found, of course, in verse 15 at the very beginning, see to it. See to it. These simple words proclaim that our duty is to watch over one another for spiritual good. These words denote a diligent looking, and the stress of the word is on it being a continual effort. So, what he's saying is always be vigilant regarding spiritual matters, not only for yourself, but for each other. So this is what one man has called a verb of concern. See to it. Pay attention. Watch. Be vigilant. It's right to be anxious in this sense for another's spiritual safety. Paul, as an apostle, showed this kind of Watch care, that's the old-fashioned word for what's going on here. He showed this kind of anxiety over the churches. Remember, recently we read in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, Paul saying this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, we aren't called to have the same breadth of concern as an apostle, but surely we are being called here to the same depth of concern. Apostles had responsibility for all of the churches, and they cared about all of them in a breadth and each member in depth. Well, pastors are called upon to be concerned for the one congregation the Lord has placed them over, and to be concerned with each of the people in depth. But there's not a hint in this passage that that's a pastoral only duty. The call to loving watchfulness here isn't for pastors or deacons only. This is a duty for every church member, for everyone in the body. And because sin confronts each of us, we all need to be doing this, yes, for ourselves, but also for each other. No one is exempt from needing to pursue peace and pursue holiness. No one is immune from the temptation to quit running the race. So see to it, is a call to know each other, to remember each other, to live in actual functioning community with each other, to care about the spiritual condition of your fellow church members. Are you trying to do this, brother or sister? Do you have others over on occasion? Do you stay and eat together when opportunity permits to hear the joys and the struggles of other Christians? Do you involve yourself with prayer meeting or phone calls or texts or trying to stay in touch with each other spiritually? No one should be an island. Or to go back to the marathon illustration no one should try to run. No one should be forced to run. The, life, uh, the race of faith by themselves. You know, the best cross-country teams always run as packs. <laughs> they stay close to one another, encouraging each other when they get tired and supporting each other all the way to the end. Well, are you living your church life this way? Or are you alone by your choice or maybe everyone else's? Perhaps you're alone as an individual. Perhaps you're alone as a family. Well, none of that's healthy, none of that's good, none of that fits the call that's found at the beginning of verse 15. Doesn't match the duty. Now notice that there are three things they're challenged to watch out for, that we are challenged to watch out for. See to it that, see to it that, see to it it that, three negatives. That no one, that no one, that no one. The preacher's call is for them to pay attention to the state of each other's souls, specifically in regard to this, in regard to apostasy. Now that may not be immediately obvious just from having read through the text once, but I hope in the next point to show you that. But for now, I want to make the point that this is a concern for large and life or death spiritual issues. This call to be involved in each other's life, this watchfulness, isn't a call to be a nosy, meddling snoop. <laughs> it's not a reason for to wrongly insert yourselves into other people's business, but it is a call to care for each other's never dying souls and help them reach the finish line and heaven. This duty is what used to be called the care of souls. And again, lest you think this is a pastoral only duty or function, and it is that of course, Protestants have always taught this to be a congregational concern, just as this verse does. Martin Bucer, the pastor in Strasbourg, friend of Luther and really tutor of Calvin for a while and teaching him how to be a good pastor. This was between Calvin's two visits to Geneva Well, Martin Bootser, the pastor there, was very helpful to Calvin in training him in this particular area. And he even wrote a book on this subject. It was called, or it is called in the English translation, Concerning the True Care of Souls. And he strongly makes the point that this is not only the elder's responsibility, but that of the entire church. Brothers and sisters, we must look out after each other, not in a sinful way, not in a way that goes into places that are none of our business or not our right, but in concern about spiritual matters, especially the matters of ultimacy, heaven or hell, peace and holiness. Right? This is part of the one-anothering that we owe, not just to each other, but to God. All right? So that's duty's first point, duty's definition. Now let's look at duty's goal. And I can sum up this goal very simply. It's that no one would become apostate. No one would leave the race and not finish it. No one would deny Christ and leave the way. It should be our goal in seeing to each other that no one falls away from their profession. This is stated in three different ways in these verses, but they are all making the same point. Each that is really summed up the same way. The first two goals or that's are found in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. The final one is at the beginning of verse 16 and covers verses 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, meaning profane or irreligious, like Esau, all right? All of these are warnings against apostasy. So let's, let's look at each one quickly. And you won't be surprised to learn, if you didn't know already, that each of these three examples are from an Old Testament passage, right? Because that's what the preacher's doing here in Hebrews. This is an early book. He doesn't have a New Testament canon, he's got an Old Testament canon, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, he is explaining what these Old Testament texts means. This is really just a sermon made up of little sermonettes from Old Testament passages. The first passage is uh, Deuteronomy 29, and both 1 and 2 come from Deuteronomy 29, So he takes that text and applies part of it to his New Testament hearers. This first one urges them see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The second reads see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Now these. These same thoughts are found in Deuteronomy 29. This is a covenant renewal uh, context. Uh, Moses has brought the people of God to a place where they are going to promise again to be God's people and he to be their God. So the covenant is being renewed here. This is before they go into the promised land and toward the end of their uh, wilderness journey. This is a new generation. They need to pledge to God again. Well, in here he tells them about all that God has done for them. And then when he gets down to verse 16, um, I'll begin reading and I'll read through verse 21. Now, the writer to the Hebrews isn't using, obviously, the English, nor was he using the Hebrew. Every quotation in uh, Hebrews from the Old Testament is from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So this isn't gonna follow exactly word for word with what he says um, with, with our Bible, but it, it does with his, all right? Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which were among them. Now here's the warning, and here, is, here are both of these um, things that the Hebrews preacher says that we are to see that, see too. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God. That's to fall short of the grace of God and serve the God of these nations. Notice this is not some small sin uh, that someone gets a slap on the wrist on. This is the difference between being in covenant with God or not. This is the difference between being part of the people of God or not. This is idolatry or the true worship of Jehovah. So this is apostasy. Notice how the verse goes on. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. There's our second warning. One who, now, but, but listen to what this root is. This root is a person. We'll talk about that more. This root is a person. Listen to what this person does. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I don't believe this nonsense, but I'll be okay. I'll outwardly go along with this. Inside, I won't, though. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Both the good and the evil will come to harm because they allow this root, this evil person, to be in their midst who denies God, who is a hypocrite the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Verse 20, But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of this law. So again, this is no mere trifling matter. Oh, you used the wrong color thread on that coat that you made, and that's supposed to be for the priests, and uh, just kind of undo that, pull that thread, and things will be okay. No, this is about life and death. This is about God or idolatry. This is apostasy. The root is a person who is an apostate, someone who outwardly appears to be among the people of God, makes some sort of profession, but in fact is not. In both cases, there is a clear warning against a person becoming an idolater and so leaving the true God, the great king of the covenant. The sin in view is not some lesser transgression revolving merely the loss of rewards (laughs) or, well, less blessing. You know, you'll have your heap of gold will be less than their heap of gold. No, nothing like that. This is full apostasy. This is rejecting the true God. So the first one is a turning away from the Lord to serve other gods. This is failing to obtain the grace of God. Now, today we're not often tempted to follow Moloch and give him our children or other paying, pagan deities. No, no, we, we listen, if we're wise, to the warnings of Jesus about the cares and riches and pleasures of life. He says that focusing on these things doesn't leave any room for the grace of God. Other gods displace the true God. Why, you can catch the seed and you can be that and spring up, and yet the cares of the world kill it. Not a true seed, not a true plant. When people live with other gods, displacing the one true God, then our complete reward is in this life. Oh, we will indeed have our best life now, but in the next life, nothing but death will be our portion. There will be no inheritance. There'll be no face of God to see. There'll be no glory for idolaters and apostates. Failing to obtain the grace of God leaves nothing but misery. And the second goal, or warning against apostasy, is a person likened to a root. The root of bitterness is not a sinful tendency in the heart, at least not in these verses. It is, of course, in other places. Bitterness as a sin is warned against repeatedly in scripture. Paul in Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, there it is, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. But here the root is a person. Someone who produces poisonous and bitter fruit. This is a man or a woman who is so proud that they think they can walk in the stubbornness of their heart. That is, they can abandon the covenant laws given by God. This is a hypocrite. This is a Christian on the outside, but not on the inside. This is someone who says, I don't have to pursue peace or holiness. I'll be safe, to quote Deuteronomy 29. No, no, no. God always sees this. And he will righteously punish all who leave allegiance to him. Notice there is, with this second example, a very practical concern by the preacher. He is afraid that this person's apostasy might be infectious. Now, all of us are sick and tired of hearing about someone may or may not be infectious. And you need to be quarantined, or you need to be do this or that. Enough of it. Here, this is a spiritual infection. This is, this is nothing a mask is going to help you with or not help you with. The root here in verse 15 is one that springs up. This root produces a plant, and this plant causes trouble. This plant is not productive of something good to eat It's productive of spiritual trouble, according to our verse, of defilement, of dirtying. That is, this plant produces sin. It produces disobedience. Here is a person that doesn't produce peace and holiness, but he infects others with trouble. Notice the word there. And defilement. The two opposite things of what we are supposed to be pursuing, this root springs up as a plant and produces just the opposite. So we watch one another, lovingly, carefully. Not beyond what God calls us to, but really, in case we start to see a pattern not of peace, but of trouble. Yeah, that brother or sister seems to be more of a troublemaker than a peacemaker. Could that be said of you? That's a sign of approaching apostasy. That person seems to be more of a dirty than clean. They don't seem to be pursuing holiness. They seem to be constantly defiled. Oh, how can I help them? How can I warn them? How can I set an example for them? That, That ought to be the concern. Not to judge too quickly, But to be alert, to see to it, (laughs) so that even if it is true for them, it won't spread to others. We don't want others polluted. Paul duplicates this warning in Galatians 5. Listen to this. You'd you'd almost think one was thinking about the other passage. He starts off, you were running well. There's the picture, right? You were running well. You were running the Christian life well. Who hindered you? There's verses verses 12 and 13 and on. Right? Who hindered you? From obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There's the concern about it being spread. I have confidence in the Lord and that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you There's that word. The one who is making sure there isn't any peace (laughs) will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Do you see the same themes? Running, obeying the truth, that is holiness. A man causing trouble, a man who isn't peaceable. He says, beware of them because his sin might be like leaven. It might infect you. You see, it's not just small sins that may be caught. And small sins can be caught. Proverbs rather famously says, don't don't make good friends with an angry man or you'll become angry too. Hang around too long, you'll learn his ways. Well, that's true with lots of sins. But here we learn that even apostasy, in other words, abandoning our confession of God can be caught from others. We can become defiled by someone else. Now, the third example of an apostate, and and this one you'll readily recognize because Esau is famous as an apostate in the Bible. Um, This is the third goal of what not to be. Don't aim for this. Don't be like this guy. This is not a positive example. This is a negative example. Don't be that guy, as they say. This is in verses 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, the blessing, with tears. He is described in summary fashion here as an unholy man. He does not live a life running the race of faith and holiness. Notice he is said to be sexually immoral and unholy. The immorality probably refers to him taking two wives. That certainly displeased his parents, not because they were unloving, but because they knew the law of God. That's immoral. Secondly, he's called unholy, or better words to convey in in our day what, what... what's the meaning here is, is profane, that is taking something that's holy and making it common, or irreligious. Here's a man of the world. Esau is a man that never went to worship or church. He cared seven days a week for life, for wine, for women, for song, for hunting, for his belly, he loved to eat. He was profane. He was irreligious. He didn't give to God his due. Esau's concerns were all about feeding his appetites, about pleasing himself. So much so that he saw no real value to his birthright, which was his spiritual heritage. He knew the promises given to his fathers, But they and God and the God who gave them simply weren't important to him. And he made this famously clear, or infamously clear perhaps would be better, when he traded his blessings of the firstborn for what? A million dollars? A little bowl of soup. Because he had so little self-control to his own appetite that he couldn't be hungry for a little bit. He thought so little of God's promises and blessings that according to scripture, he actually despised his birthright. Genesis 25, 34. So this is a profane man. This is a profane man. Now later, some sort of remorse comes over him, but it was too late. His opportunity for the blessing had come and gone. So even though he goes back to his father with tears, begging for the blessing, there was no way to recover it. It had already been spoken. It had already been given. You see, Esau was an unbeliever and he lived like one, very simply. He had the opportunity to receive the inheritance, but he traded it for a bit of red stew. He was an apostate. He broke covenant with God and threw away heaven for earth. He chose his stomach over his birthright. And while he mourned the loss of his privileges, he did not mourn his profanity. There's no sorrow for sin anywhere here in his story in the Bible. So these are three examples of apostasy. And our duty is to watch out for ourselves and each other in love. To help each other to heaven. The goal is to run as a pack, brothers and sisters, this cross-country race all the way to the finish line. Right. Quickly, three of duties. This is... First, recognize that outward spiritual privileges don't guarantee heavenly inheritance. An outward spiritual privilege, or many of them, do not guarantee a heavenly inheritance. Esau was Isaac's firstborn. He was circumcised according to the covenant. He was taught about the true God by his father, yet he did not gain the promised blessings. Instead, he became an immoral and profane man. So we must never trust our outward privileges, but place our faith solely in Jesus Christ. Now, these outward privileges are great blessings in themselves. Absolutely. Being born of Christian parents is one of life's greatest blessings. Really, really. Some of your children don't understand that yet. Oh, may you one day recognize it with full light. But unless you make the truths that your parents tell you, children, yours, unless you make them yours, unless you believe on Jesus Christ, you will fail to obtain the grace of God. Your baptism, your church membership can be valuable aids to you if you are safely in Jesus Christ. But if you are not, they're just a form of religion that will do you no good in the last day. You may well know right from wrong, being taught in morality, but if you don't actually pursue holiness in this life, you will not see the Lord. Outward spiritual privileges don't guarantee heavenly inheritances. Secondly, let us carefully watch ourselves and each other for the beginnings of apostasy. Is the love of things greed, lust, a preoccupation with the world beginning to rule you? Has sexual impurity or a disdain for the worship of God begun to take hold in you or your brother's heart? Well, if so, spiritual danger is near. Apostasy is not far off And so let us watch and pray for ourselves and each other. Brothers and sisters, I hope I don't have to be any more plain than that, for your minds to be alert to the kind of spiritual battle we as a church are exercised in right now. Well, third and finally, What's the antidote to the root of bitterness? What's the antidote to the root of bitterness? It's the branch of Jesse. It's the branch of Jesse. Remember, the root is a man who is so wicked that what he produces is trouble and defilement. But praise God, there's not only one root among men. (laughs) Jesse, the father of David, was also a father to Jesus Christ, and Jesus is described in Isaiah 11, 1 as, quote, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. But his fruit won't be diseased and bitter and only worthy of being thrown in the garbage heap. Jesus Christ's fruit is described in Isaiah 11, in as such things as the fear of the Lord, righteousness, faithfulness. It then even goes on to say that where he reigns, peace will reign. Do these words holiness and peace strike a remembrance at all? Peace reigns where Christ does. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Some of you are lions. Some of you are lambs. And God has made you one. Peaceably, holily living with each other. Do you want to finish the race? Do you want to receive the inheritance? Do you want to see the Lord? Then go to Jesus Christ because he is the author and finisher of faith, and he is the one in whom all peace and holiness live.